So um, again, we're going to be looking at the Shirat Hayam. And as you can see, it's unique. There are only two texts in the Tanakh that look in any way like this. Uh, this one, the Song of the Sea, it's called, and Shirat Devorah, the Song of Deborah. So where did this come from? I mean, what's going on here? As you can see, there are spaces in the text. So um, let's dive in and let's look at a, at, at a Gemara. The Gemara tells us the following three opinions. Tonarabonim, Bobayom, on that particular day, Darash Rabbi Akiva, Beshar Sha'alu Yisrael Minayam. He, he expounded as he would normally do. Heschel has a whole book on the difference between the school of Rabbi Ishmael and the school of Rabbi Akiva, and paralleling throughout Shas, their two opposing views of interpretation of the text, one being high, uh, literal and the other one being very, very metaphorical. Rabbi Akiva says, Yisrael min ayam, natnu lomar shira. He is being Doresh, the problem in our text. Our text begins before these words, Oz Yoshir Moshe. If you look at the Pasuk before, it says, Vayar Yisrael at Mitzrayim metal sfatayam. So the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. In fact, uh, we're told that the Malach that was in charge of the Yabasha was called Yavshan, and the sea didn't want to hold the bodies, so it threw it onto the Yab Yabesh, Yabasha. Very mythical idea, who's going to contain the bodies of the dead Egyptians. So they were thrown right in front of the Israelites on the seashore. Vayar Yisrael es Mitzrayim meit al Sfasayam. Vayar Yisrael es Yad Hagadola. And everyone saw the great hand, Asher Asa Adonai b'Mitzrayim, Vayiromet Adonai, Vayamidu Adonai v'Moshe Avdo. Then it says, Oz Yoshir Moshe v'Nei Yisrael Hashira Hazos, very nice. L'Adonai, they're singing this song to God. What, what on earth are these next two words doing? Vayomru? Okay, Vayomru. Well, it should have been Vayoshru, they sang, but okay, Vayomru. Let me sing. It's in the cohortative tense. Let me sing a song to God. What's this lamor business? When we see the word lamor, it usually, it usually reflects a divine inspiration. And God spoke to Moses lamor, and then everything that comes out of Moses is word for word from the Shekhinah. Well, that's not what's happening here. They are responding to watching the Egyptians dead on the shore, and their response is to break out into song. And so the three Tanaim that I'm going to present to you are interpreting that one word, Lamar. What does Lamar mean? Where do, what does it imply? It's redundant, so it must mean something. That's what, that, that's what we are quoting from the Mishnah in Sota as Bo Bayom Darash Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva is the first to be Doresh. What does this word mean? What does he say? When they came from the sea, not knowing Nahem Lomar, their eyes 
their eye, they set their eyes on reciting a song of gratitude to God. Omru. So how did it go? How did it go? Ketzad Omru. Shira Kagodal Hamikra. So they so the so the so the Gemara, the Mishnah tells us, I'll tell you how they do it. They did it in the in the in the same manner as reciting the Hallel. Now the Hallel comes from Psalms, and the Psalms comes from the Levium. And it's a binary form. So it's this one group of Psalm, the Levites said the first half, and then there's a space, and then the second group says the second half. So Rabbi Akiva is saying, Lamo means the same way as it's done by Hallel. And the congregation, the Makare et Hallel, the Godol is Makare et Hallel. So the leader, the Chazan, recites the Hallel with the first half. The Hain Onin Acharov Roshe Prokim. For instance, Moshe Alma Oshiro Ladonai. The Hain Omrim Oshiro Ladonai. Moshe Amaki So they are going back to Oshiro Ladonai as a refrain. That's what Rabbi Akiva is saying. Moshe is going to go through the whole Ozi Oshir Moshe. But after every stitch, Am Yisrael will repeat Oshiro Ladonai. That's the Rabbi Akiva statement. Rabbi Eleza, Benosha, Rabbi Yosi, Aglili. Rabbi Eleza says, I have a different tradition. No, no. This is like in a classroom. The Rebbe says this, and the children cite this. If you ever go in Mesharim past these little Chadorim, you hear the Rebbe zog the Mishnah, and the kids are screaming after him exactly his words. For instance, Kol Mashu Omer. Moshe Omer Adonai, Vehein Omer Moshe Adonai. Moshe So it's a direct repetition. Interesting. It's a different way of reading Lamo. And now what's of great interest to me, Rab Nechemia Omer, Kesofer Hapoires Alshmar Bebeta Knesses. It's like a scribe or a cantor who recites aloud the introductory verses in the prayers and blessings for the Korea Shemayan Sinek. So he goes, Baruch Shema Vayalam, and then the rest of the people say the whole of Baruch Shema. Ashrei Yoshvei Veisecho, and the rest of the people sing the rest of Ashrei. He doesn't say the whole of Ashrei in Ashkenaz, in Sfarad, they do. But... So he says by the first words, and they repeat the initial words. So, He who poteach techila, vehein onin achrov. He begins the initial words, and they continue reciting the rest of the Shema together with him. So too in the Song of the Sea. Moses begins, and then everyone else recites the rest of the song. Okay, so we have three opinions regarding what this means. Our tradition offers three possibilities for the unique orthographic structure of this poem. There are gaps. And what are the reasons for the gaps? The reasons for the gaps is a unique style of singing. What is the unique style? Well, it differs. There's a discussion about what the unique style was. 
which reflects Moses's leadership style, right? <laughs> the way he leads them in this song is a reflection of his leadership. The Torah tells us that Moshe and the Israelites, Moshe uvenei Yisrael Moshe and the Israelites sang the song. So Akiva argues that Moses alone sang all of the verses. So what's Moshe uvenei Yisrael? Well, the uvenei Yisrael is just the Lord is my strength and might, or Shirol Adonai Kigo. We don't know what the actual stitch was that they sang, but it was a repetitive one. So Moses is the preacher. And the people answered, Amen. I'm thinking of a black church where the preacher says out loud exactly, and the people go, Amen, Amen. After every verse, that every sentence that he goes, he goes, Amen. And, and then he, he goes, and say Amen after me. And they'll go, Amen. And do you agree with what I say? Yes, Amen, Amen. He's the preacher. Everything is on his shoulders. We're just the followers. Another tradition argues that Moshe is reciting each line and the people repeat exactly what he says, like a teacher in a school, as if he was teaching them what words of praise they should say. I'm teaching you how to daven. I'm teaching you how to be an Eved Hashem. I'm teaching you. Now you respond after me. That's Moshe as a didactic leader. The first is Moshe as a prophetic leader, he alone has the prophecy. All we can go and say is Amen. Yeah, yeah, whatever you say, whatever. The second one is, no, I'm teaching you how to do this thing. I need you to learn how to do this thing. So, and, and, and this tradition is the, the second opinion. The third, Rav Hanina, is different. The third tradition, which in fact is embraced by Rashi, because Rashi says, that all the people were blessed at that moment with divine inspiration. The Shekhinah was sure on everybody at that moment uh, of the parting of the Red Sea. So there was this Nes Gilui, this revelation. Everyone was open to the divine inspiration. And therefore, Moses and the people together recited the same words at exactly the same time. What is most interesting is the fourth view, that Moshe began each verse and the people then repeated what he said and completed the verse. That fourth view is the anonymous view. That is, Moshe didn't teach them anything. He just started his stitch of the verse and the people individually, communally, were able through Ruach HaKodesh to simultaneously say the same words, but they did it on their own. They were not directed by Moshe. So Moshe started by saying, and the people re responds, in this fourth view, he doesn't lead by telling the people what to think or say, or waiting for the divine providence to be sure and everyone says it from that, from inspiration. He creates a framework in which the people can find their own voice. They can articulate their own conception of God and define their relationship with God. In each phrase, let's go back to the orthography, because we're looking at a reason theologically for these spaces. In each phrase, that's the middle phrase, he sets the scene, allowing the appropriate response to emerge from the voice of the people. 
In this view, Moshe's leadership is a partnering with the people to enable them to create their own vision of what it means to be in community with this God. In this view, Moshe does not dictate, but nurtures the emergence of this brand new conception of Jewish peoplehood. Now, I have to say over, because again, as my father-in-law says, nothing I say could possibly be new. It's all been said before. The Lubavitcher Rebbe picks up on these three types of leadership. He says, Rabbi Akiva describes an ideal in which a people completely abnegate their individuality to the collective identity embodied by the leader. Sounds familiar? That's a Rebbe. That's a Hasidish Rebbe. Self-abnegation in, in Lubavitch is called bittel. You have to be mavatil yourself to the Rebbe. The advantage is, is you have an army. I mean, I, was, I had to go at 4 a.m. I was called up. I was stuck by the capital in Indianapolis with 350 soldiers. And uh, next morning, I didn't have my tefillin. I picked up, what, I picked up the phone. <laughs> I called 1-800-Chabad. <laughs> and within five minutes, some guy in a beard showed up with a pair of tefillin for me, right? That's shlichus. I just couldn't believe it, right? He, he, he comes to me and he says, just keep it as long as you need it. That's a rebbe. That's a leader. You have an army. Moshe alone sang the nation's gratitude to Hashem, their experience of redemption. So the leader or the rebbe, the servant leader, is singing the, the, the Hasidim song to God. The people had nothing further to say as an individual other than to affirm the unanimous assent to Moshe was expressing. Rabbi Elez, however, argues that this is but a superficial unity. It's an external imposed unity of the moment rather than an inner enduring unity. If you set aside your own thoughts and feelings to be mevatel yourself to a Rebbe, then you're united only in word and deed, but the inner self remains different and distinct. So Rabbi Eleza interprets the Torah's description of Israel's song to say that they did not merely affirm the song with their refrain, but repeated his words themselves, meaning each individual Jew internalized the message of the Rebbe's words. Fine. Rabbi Nehemiah is still not satisfied. If Israel repeated these verses after Moshe, this would imply that their song did not stem from the very deepest part of themselves. It's inner, but it's the superficial inner. <laughs> For if the people were truly one with the Rebbe, why would they need to hear their song from his lips before they would sing it themselves? So Rabbi Nehemiah adds, according to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the deepest strata, that Moshe started them off with the first words so as to stimulate their deepest experience of the miracle with the result that each of them sang the entire song on their own. It's a beautiful interpretation of the Gemara. I'm going to come back to Reb Nehemiah. I want to go back now to the orthography and the style. Now let's go back to that Gemara. The rabbis of the Talmud refer to this graphic form, Gemara and Megillah, by saying the following, Omar of Hanina Bar Papa, they expounded that all the passages of Bible song are written as half bricks arranged upon whole bricks. These are different types of orthography 
that I'm going to go through these four. Obviously, this one is the Shirat Hayam. You see, but how does the Gemara describe these songs? There are different types of song or heightened prose in the Torah, in the Bible. So there are half bricks arranged upon whole bricks and whole bricks arranged upon half bricks. The exception is the, the rogue Haman's ten sons. If you look in the Megillah, they're just one row, half brick on another half brick. So half a brick is one side of the scroll and that. So Haman's sons are listed like that. Each line of the song is devoted to the mention of a single son. The same is the, the vanquished kings. And the next type is half brick over a whole brick. And a whole brick over a half brick. And that's what we see in Shirat Devorah. The reason advanced by the Talmud to explain this atypical form draws its inspiration, actually, from structural engineering. Until the modern period and the advent of steel-reinforced concrete and curtain wall construction, a building's maximum height was controlled by the limited compression strength of its material. Greater height could be only achieved by widening the base so that the load could be more widely distributed. Buildings that attempted to maintain a uniform floor area over the course of their rise would become less stable once the design limits of the material had been reached. And typically, as we see in a pre-concrete New York buildings, these could not exceed six to eight stories. So suggests the Talmud, the written form of these songs is an integral part of their interpretation. The tall and slender columns of the sons of Haman or the kings that were vanquished preserve comprising of 11 lines or stories are not only a literary record of their infamy, but an, also an unspoken statement that having been toppled or deposed, their acts of villainy cannot reoccur. Now, the only example of the half brick and the full brick that's brought in Masechet Sofrim is that of Shirat Devorah and the Shirat Hayang, the triumphant song and ode by Devorah and Barak after their crushing victory over Yavin, the king of Chazor, and the song of the sea. Moshe and the people sing the song to God. And this is the half brick over the full brick that I want to talk about. Now, the Kedushas Levi, in a highly mystical work, brings us this Gemara in Megillah and tells us in his Lekutim that the Shira is built Ariach al Gabe Levena, the half brick over the full brick, or Levena al Gabe Ariach. And he says, We have to be really mightily upset and ponderous and wondrous as to what on earth is going on. Because if you can see in this verse from Isaiah, he says, Now look at this from chapter 51 of Isaiah. Attend to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. Remember, that's really a trope on Hazinu Shemaim, but that's another story. Ki Torah me'iti teitzei. 
for instruction shall go forth from me. Umishpati laor ami argir, and a sudden for a light of the peoples. What's the problem with this verse? The word teitze. What's the problem with teitze? Well, it's the imperfect. Torah meiti yatsa or yotzeis. It continues to go out. What is Isaiah implying by saying Torah meiti teitze? And Vayikra Rabba makes the most outrageous statement. Omar Rab Avin Bar Kahana, Omar Kodesh Baruchu, troping on, midrashically troping on that verse, Torah Me'iti Teitze, it says radically, Torah Chadasha Me'iti Teitze. Rab Avin makes the outrageous statement that Isaiah is saying literally, that a Torah Chadasha, we are waiting for a Torah Chadasha, Lord. Chidush Torah me'iti teitze. Then he pulls back and says, well, of course, I don't mean a complete new Torah, but I mean a Chidush of Torah. A Chidush in Torah should come out. He pulls back. Torah Chadasha me'iti. Now, what is going on? The Kedushas Levi picks up on this verse and says, Torah Hadasha Meiti Teitze, picking up on Vayikra because it's not in the it's, it's not in the literal text. It just says Torah. It's Vayikra that adds Torah Hadasha Meiti Teitze, and he gets very very upset. Hello, echad miyud gimoli korim shezoyz ha Torah lotei muchle. Didn't the Rambam teach us that this Torah shall never be changed? That that the Torah is un, in it's enduring. And it's one of the 13 uh, Ikarim of the Torah, that it shouldn't be changed. And now he dives into this mystical idea, which comes back to the structure and the shape of our song. The bricks, the small bricks on the large bricks in that brick structure of the building. Anytime someone says, and certainly <laughs> Kedusha Slaver, Everybody knows, you know it's a big Chiddush. Kihine Yadua. She'otiot ha-Torah heim bechinat orot p'nimin. Tells us something very profound and, and um, known to all Kabbalists, stemming from a Zoya that the Torah was given black fire on white fire. For after all, what's the white spaces between the words? That also came down from above. Aish from above. So it was black fire which is the black words, the letters, and then the white fire, which we can't decipher, it's the space between the words. And those are the orot pnimim, the two types of lights that come down from the divine. There's orot pnimim, the light that came down through the down chaining all the way down to the Gashmias world, through the tense firot of condensation, tzimtzum, and those lights end up in the words of Torah. Asheh behit galut. It's revealed. You know what the Torah says. It's written. It's orthography. It's language. Ugvul halavon. But the white space on either side of those letters. Hamakif laotios that surround the letters. Heim bechinot orot hamakifim. Those are lights that are so profound and so beyond us, 
They're called lights that are transcending. So we have no way to appreciate. We can see what's in the visual scale of our brain, what our retina tells us we can see. Infrared, ultraviolet, we cannot see it. We need machines to see it. We can't see it. That's what he means. These are orot hamakifim. We see in the universe those white dots that pierce our eyes. What's surrounding them? Physics has a lot to say about the space between the planets. It's not dead space. It's not the absence of stars. It's not the absence of light. It's just not visible to our perception. That's what he means by orot makifim. They are not revealed, but they are there. Behelem. It's a very radical, mystical idea of the hidden. The hidden is not just hidden from sight. It's not yet revealed. And here's the radical Torah of the Kedushas Levi. So you must understand that even the whiteness surrounding the black letters are the Bechina of Otios. They are language. There is stuff between the stars that we don't see, but it's there. There is intra ultraviolet and infrared that we don't see, but it's there. Ach, heim Otios ne'lamim. The only difference is we can't see it. It's our perception. It's our retina. It's our visual third eye that we don't see it. Okay. Ach, Bekrias Yamsuf. So now something has happened in the history of Am Yisrael. There was this amazing miracle that was beyond nature. There are Nesim Giluim and there are Nisim that are beyond nature, right? Four years ago, my Audi flipped because I was an idiot on Highway 65. That was a nace for me. And I had to make a Sudas Hodor and I made a Brocha and a Tova Metiv and a Hagomelt. But it was a nace Galui. Why? I had an Audi. An Audi had a frame structure that when I flipped, it didn't crush on top of my head. I can explain the physics of how my car spun. We can recreate the mechanics of that collision to explain how possibly my brain wasn't injured. My mother-in-law may disagree, but I seem to feel okay. But there's a nace that's beyond explanation, beyond my intellectual explanation of the events. That's called a nace me'al hateva, which occurred at the Song of the Sea. Tahainu mibchina soibet. And that nace is the revelation of the transcendent. Why? Because the nace galui means that the nace comes through the downchaining of the shalshlus into the black letters. No, we can't explain it rationally. So it's a nace that came misaviv from the orot makifin. It came from outside nature to intrude on nature for a moment. That was the Soive. And now he says this dazzling insight. And that is why he tells us that the nace was, in a way, bricks 
upon half bricks. Bricks upon half bricks. That isn't because of poetry. That isn't because of the way the rabbis were telling us how to do it didactically or the position of leadership. Here is a mystical view. There are letters here, 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 and here. They are beyond our perception. But at that moment in history, those letters were revealed. The lochein hashira nichtevet ariach al gabe levena or levena al gabe ariach. Why? For one moment in time in history, the two were together. They could see the space between the letters in the white space. They could see the Bechina of the white letters that had until now been hidden, and from then on would always be hidden by his galus. And that explains the posuk. Torah chadosha me'iti teitze. Isaiah is actually saying something very profound that he knew had happened once in history. He is saying Torah chadasha in the future, in mystical Judaism, there will be a full circling back to where the Sovev and the Pnimi lights will once again be reunited. Once again, the Torah that is hidden will be revealed. His Galus Elokus Venigla Kvod Adonai, Tahainu Sheyie Hitgalut. This transcendent light will once again be revealed. The, the Kedushas Levi is telling us something so profound that ties together the orthography and the shape of the text and the structural engineering with the interpretations of the rabbis of leadership that circles back to Rab Hanina that said, I will start the verse. And I would like to add that the Kedusha's leaving is pointing us towards that fourth interpretation that Moshe just started the black letters, but because we had been open to this transcendence, we could read the white letters that were hidden at that time were revealed. That's what he's telling us. The Yisgale in the future beginas halavnunis, the osios hanelomim hamakifin. Which brings us back to something that I want to end on, and that is this Chidush Torah that Reb Tzodik talks about all the time, is the Chidush, for me, of something we haven't spoken about. It's a song. What is a song? A song is music. Well, what is music? And if I can quote Victor Zuckerkandl, who was a philosopher of music, he tells us something very profound. Hearing a melody is hearing, having heard, and being about to hear all at once. I'll repeat that. Hearing a niggin is hearing in the present, having heard in the past, and being about to hear all at once. There's, there's an ad now constantly on CNN 
It's for a sleep aid. And it starts, dream, 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 dream. And as it, I am filled every time with this nostalgia from 1965. I was 15 when I heard that niggum. And in love, of course. I mean, and hearing a melody is hearing, having heard, and being about to hear at once. Every melody declares to us that the past can be there without being remembered, the future without being foreknown. It's a form of sense continuity that sometimes breaks through the most overpowering disconnections in our experience of time. Well, surely that is the explanation of Shira and the Shira Tayyam. Unfortunately, Aviva takes it dark the way I like it and says in her essay on Shira Tayyam that Baruch HaLevi Epstein, my, my wife's elder fetter, the nephew of the Nitziv, argues, when did they sing the song? We assume they sang it when they got to the other side and the Mitzrayim were drowned and they were saved. Comes along the Makor Baruch in a very radical, against the grain way and says no. Instead, they sang it while still marching through the waters pursued by Paro's army. Wow! How dazzling! They are singing whilst they're being pursued by the enemy in the water. And if this is the case, Zornberg says, then the song of the sea is not a song of pure joy and triumph, but it is a song fraught with tension. They must sing in full view of their oppressors. Brilliant. Brilliant. They must sing while their future is still uncertain, wondering will they indeed make it to the other side. I am reminded of the violinist in Auschwitz who is playing and playing and playing. You must have read the, the novel. The song does not deny the pain. Instead, they have to find the strength to sing while still bearing the psychological wounds of slavery. Under these circumstances, the song of the sea must embody the complex reality of joy and pain living side by side. Until the final redemption takes place, joy and pain have no choice but to coexist. If this was true for the Jewish people at the Red Sea, how much more is it for us in this time fraught with uncertainty? Have a wonderful week and may the joy of song and the joy of pain together mingle with you and give you the courage to continue.